Welcome back to the Not Fade Away Archives. In today's episode, we discuss the tragic lesson we have struggled to master of young people who drink and drive. Our special guest today is Mike Valdez, who started the Shadow Lies Montgomery County program over 24 years ago. We're excited to have him here and, and talk about how he's had an effect on this over the last 24 years. What we're going to do, like we do with all of our uh, episodes, is we're going to go back when we were growing up as baby boomers in the late 60s and early 70s and recall what the dynamic of young people and alcohol and those times were like and then move forward a little bit later to bring it up to modern times. Little GTO, you're really looking fine. Three deuces and a four speed and a 389. Listen to her tacking up now. Listen to her whine. Come on and turn it on. Little GTO. We grew up in a culture back then that the things that we we saw, the music we listened to, the movies we watched, a lot of the TV shows were all about the good fun life and music by people like the Beach Boys and singing about fun, 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 I get around the town, uh, all the fast cars that were all had their own song. It was just a situation where you had young people and back then you could get a driver's license when you were 14 years old and we all took uh, driving and school and you did that and you could when you're 15 you had a full license and off you went and of course what you did was uh, get in cars and you're learning to drive and a car is a, a dangerous thing to drive but then we're all, we want to be cool, we want to drink beer, we want to have fun, it's the weekend. And I'm going to talk about some things that I did, and I'm going to talk about things that, one of which I didn't tell my mother for 20 years and she still got mad at me. And, and if either Gary or Mike want to contribute any badness that they did, that's up to them, but I will say I got plenty to go around. And I'm gonna start off with a story about, that's in a, actually, you'll see the one of our podcasts is called At The Drive-In. I tell this story in it. Don't sneak your buddies in the trunk cause they might get caught while they're driving. What, what, what? And they look kinda stupid getting chased through the lot around the drive-in. But in Richardson, Texas, where I grew up, we had a drive-in uh, called the Arapahoe, and I went in and I, and I went one night with two young guys that were maybe 15 or 16. I was 21, and I would, could actually legally buy beer, and I was a tennis pro at a small country club that he had only hire somebody in the summer. And of course, I was telling all these guys all these stories about being in college and all the fun we'd have, and they just begged me all summer long to take them out and drink beer. So finally, I said, all right, let's go, let's do it. 
So we'll get go get a case of beer and we'll go to the drive-in. So we do that. And of course, you can't throw the beer cans out because then they're gonna come get you. So all the beer cans are still in it. And we leave the movie and obviously in very uh, high spirits. And as everybody knows, in the drive-in, you can't drive with your lights on. So Arapahoe is a major road. I get out and turn and start driving. I drove maybe 10 yards and there comes a police car on the other side of the Esplanade and I realize my lights aren't on. And I look and his lights go on right away. And they come up and I make the great decision that I thought at the time that uh, I was going to run for it and I did. I hit the gas, off I went, I went down, found the alley to my house, went probably down that alley going 50 or 60 miles an hour. We could hear the lights behind us, but my parents had a carport and luckily because I was there, one of the sides was open. And so we drove through, got up by the house, ran on the house, looked at the blinds and the policeman just kept right on going. So I escaped that jeopardy. And I would like to ask, uh, Mike Valdez, if they would have caught us, and if it were today, today, what kind of trouble I would be in? Well, the fir first of all, on on the evading, as we call it now, in a vehicle, you would you'd been facing a felony, uh, and probably a good thing they didn't catch you. Now the the others, they might have been able to get off with a stern warning, and or depending on how intoxicated they were, they might uh, end up. For public intoxication. Well, they were both underage too. Well, there, there you go. Underage drinking. Uh, you as a driver, if you're intoxicated as well, then you'd have evading and and uh, misdemeanor DWI. But your first, first time that you got caught anyway. Uh, and yeah, it's a whole lot more serious nowadays than it used to be. But if they caught you then, I think they would have just. Who knows what they would have done? I mean, they may have arrested you. They may not. They, you know, seen that you were home, they might have been knocking on the door, get your parents out. You know. That's what happened a lot in those days, especially think, with drink, drinking and driving. I think the culture back then was a lot like that, where uh, they were very, uh, you know, don't stir the pot type thing. And B double E double R U N B double E double R U N B How happy we would be if we only brought a better fake ID on B double E double R U N B but the second story I have is I went to college in Georgetown, Texas at Southwestern. And the school, of course, had the great no drinking on campus rule, which like that's gonna keep us from drinking. And all we could do, of course, is a lot of us were underage, we just get in our cars and drive and drink beer. They had what we called, you know, rolling roads because they were out in the country and safer but i went out with a guy the drinking age was 21 we were freshmen that made us 18 we had a ice chest full of beer and somehow and it's maybe 20 miles away we ended up in temple texas and we drive in to kind of a, i think it was a car dealership and we're going to turn around and here comes a policeman up behind us and he comes up and uh 
well, we'd made an illegal turn or done something wrong or just looked suspicious. I can't remember which, but this is what we've got. We've got two minors, the beer's in the car, and we're both very drunk. So this is actually what happens. The, the policeman comes up and he goes, well, which one of the two of you is the least drunk? And I raise my hand. And he said, all right, you're going to follow me back to the police station, and I'm going to put your friend up here so you can't, you know, hightail it. So we, I follow him in there, and we go in and park in the, the, the police station, and they put us in a cell, and, of course, we get our phone call. And we call uh, the fraternity house. And they're playing poker, and yeah, we'll be up there in a little while, you know. <laughs> so, so they come up, and this was our punishment. We had to pay, and I think I've got the term right, a forfeiture bond that was 15 bucks, and that was the end of it. What would have been our uh, situation if all that would have happened today? Well, it all it all depends, uh, you know, where you you were over 17. So you were adults, right? Right. Again, you were. If they didn't get you driving and, and charge you with drinking and driving, they would have just probably just given you a public intoxication, and you might have just gone to jail and spent the night. Well, I mean that's true. Although we were uh, we were driving, he saw well, us. We one weren't of, parked. One of you was going to get a drunk driving charge, yeah. and nowadays anyway. Yeah. You know, definitely different than it was back. But those are my two main things that we did, but I have one that is the scary one. And I had back in those days for IDs, you had the driver's licenses did not have pictures on them. They were just printed and we all had draft cards. And I was looked a little young for my age anyway. I think I was 19 and I looked at this guy and the attorney, I go, you know, he looks a lot like me. <laughs> so I went over to him and I said, I'll give you 20 bucks if you uh, will just, you know, get new, a new draft card and a new license and give me this one. He goes, heck yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> so he gives them to me, and now I can go anywhere I want. There are a few people, and I think this, now that I've thought back, you know, all these country bars, they probably figured I wasn't 21, but they were safe because I'd presented legal IDs. So... They would generally always sell it, sell me the the beer or whatever. But we went down this road uh, in Georgetown, and there was a, a bar out in the country, and I show him my IDs, and he's all good with it, and so we start knocking down the beer, and we get out, and... We were heading back to the campus, and for some God thank you reason, we put on seatbelts, which we never did. And so we're driving back, and I just either passed out or something left the road straight into a cement farm culvert. And that, my car, my dad had bought me a Camaro, looked like somebody, a ping pong ball that you just squashed. It was horrible. We got out and we just walked away. And uh, along comes the DPS because somebody I think had called in the accident. 
And back, the law was back then that if they didn't see you driving, there wasn't anything they could do. So he tried to get me to take a test. I refused to do it. And he just took us to the emergency room. And we, uh, you know, went back. Of course, my dad freaked out. My parents were very upset. And it was very, very lucky that we survived that. It's ironic that my guy that was riding with me turned out to be a Methodist minister, but uh, maybe God figured he needed him or something, but uh, we survived that. So that, that's my last one of my bad three. So tell me about today's culture and what they would do to you. Well, nowadays, again, you look probably get, get arrested for drunk driving. Uh, if, if your friend had been injured in any way, you'd have been probably been charged with, with intoxication assault, and that's a felony. Uh, depending on the seriousness of it, of it uh, as well, but just because he gets injured, I mean, he could have broken a finger or something, that would have been enough to get you a felony. Uh, and as far as totaling the car, depending if you damage that culvert, they can charge you with, uh, you know, is it an accident involving damage over $250? Of course, back then, it probably didn't even cost that much. Yeah. But, you know, but there are all kinds of different little charges that can come along. And, you know, and your record, DWIs don't ever go away. But I think that the, the thing about it that as I look back on all this now, and I think it was exemplified that when I got out of college, the first job that I got, I had to take a polygraph to get the job. It was Zales Corporation, a you know, big, big chain, although I worked actually at a sporting goods store that they owned. And the guy told me, he said, look, you know, the main thing is don't lie to me. He said, everybody's got some things that uh, you've done, and just be honest about it. So I told him about all that and that I've just done and more, and he told me, and I was, as I did it, I was going, oh, man, I am never going to get this job. I sound like, you know, they might come arrest me for confessing all of this. But we got done, and he said, uh, uh, you know, you sound like a pretty good kid. And he even laughed about a couple of the stories, and I got the job. And I think the lesson was that's the way most of us were back then. We partied. We broke all the rules. My parents got me a GTO that actually was my mom's car, but somehow I talked her into that's what she needed to drive. So we did that, and we... Uh, uh, I got a ticket for contesting speed or drag racing, and we went down, and actually we're going to do an episode on this uh, to the old-time wrestling matches. I had a good friend that uh, his dad actually managed the Sportatorium in Dallas where they had him, and we'd come back late at night, and we buried the speedometer a couple times, went about 140 down 75, just un you know, never got stopped or anything, but we just, we all were, you know, like, uh, I'm looking at a lot of these movies and, and thinking about them. And I, I go back like the beach party movies. There was a scene in that where, uh, the guy, a guy, all like Frankie Avalon and Nettie Funicello, who were actually playing high school students. Although I think Frankie Avalon was about 30 by then. But they all went to a bar, and they were high school kids, and 
we're going, you know, where's that bar at? You know, we want to go to that one. But the, at the, but the Maury Amsterdam played the guy that owned it, and he said, well, it was okay because all they served was beer. You know, it's just, it was a different time and different things. And movies like uh, Rebel Without a Cause, Easy Rider, American Graffiti, all were about uh getting out, having fun, doing drugs, drinking beer, uh, you know, things like that. So I don't know if Gary or Mike have anything to add, but Gary had a pretty inter interesting thought that I wanted to share before we got into the, to the next part of this. We actually did a uh, episode that you can listen to on Barbie, kind of relating to the movie now, but my sister who was on this actually had the first Barbies that were ever made and Gary brought up a point about why kids like playing with Barbie well I, I just talked about how uh, we're always so quick to grow up and that you know little girls playing with Barbie was something that they could feel like they're more grown up because Barbie was a young woman and and uh, I think it relates to uh, I know when I got my car, I couldn't wait to get a car, couldn't wait to get out on the road with my friends. And really, I think I was just trying to grow up quicker than I probably needed to. And I, I, I think that's a, gone through the, you know, through history, that's always been a deal. The problem with now is there's so much distracted driving. And honestly, I don't think people drive as well today as they did when, when we were all younger. Uh, people speed. They don't pay attention, they're looking at their phone, they're eating, they're drinking. Uh, I think the roads are a lot more crowded and I think they're a lot more dangerous. And that therein lies the problem for the young people these days. I think, you know, there's a problem and a solution. The problem is texting and all the distractions that we have. The solution now, and I have two daughters that have always done this they're in their 30s now but they uber yeah anytime they go out and they know they're going to have more than say a drink mm -hmm. that's just how they roll yeah they just don't even consider driving and now they're both in cities so it actually the when you go out in city you always find a place to park is a real sure. pain anyway yeah so it's convenient as well but they just do that i think the flip side though is texting yeah. And that's something we didn't have back then that you just, you can almost tell when you're going down the uh, the road that a car in front of you, the guy's texting. Because yeah. he's weaving and not looking up. And uh, those are things that we didn't have to deal with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a safer way to do it now that's easier to do. Designated drivers, too, have become a real big part of this. And... Uh, but I think the lesson is, and the, the name of the episode, Can't Keep Learning the Same Lessons Over Again, is actually from a rock song. And, and it's about how we keep making the mistake, same mistakes over and over and over again. And there's still a lot of young people that make the same mistakes. <laughs> Alone. 
keeps my eyes set on what's ahead. So, what we're going to do now is Gary and uh, Mike have been involved with Shattered Lies for, like Gary alluded to, for a quarter of a century actually. Gary is going producing a uh, movie that uh, is about Shattered Lies. It's actually, I misspoke, it's a TV series that's kind of like a movie, but to get in all the stuff they needed to get in, you couldn't do it in two or three hours. So I'm gonna kind of ask them to just tell us about that project and uh, the, both the roots of how it came to be and what they're gonna do moving forward. So I'm basically gonna uh, try to stay out of trouble like I seem to have gotten into so much as I told you about all this stuff and just let Gary and Mike uh, let us know about the Shattered Lies Project. Well, let's, Michael, why don't you start with in the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning. Yes, back, in the, back in the 90s, as a, as a young prosecutor, I say young, I was already older, but uh, my career started in 90 as a prosecutor in Montgomery County. And in, in about 1998, I had a friend, uh, I had moved up in the ranks, as we say, a friend of mine named Debbie Jo Felder, who worked in the probation department. She was a supervisor there, and she came to me because we had a lot of dealings uh, about a couple of her people had gone to a a seminar or conference in Mansfield, Texas, where they saw a great program. And she said, you need to watch this video. She comes and she hands me a video of a program called Every 15 Minutes. We watched that video. Uh, I think we both cried. Uh, but it was an awesome video about a program that was taking place that had originated in Chico, California, back way before this, this time, uh, probably in the early 70s. Uh, the premise being that every 15 minutes someone died of an alcohol-related fatality. Uh, but we saw the program. I showed it to my boss at the time was Frank Bass, the county attorney, and he, he basically looked over at me and said, make it happen. Now, that was an easier word to say because I had a lot of context. In, in my position, I, had, I was as a prosecutor and, and as a chief of the, in the division. I knew almost all the law enforcement, all the, all the, the, the sheriffs, the constables, the deputies, uh, basically I grew up with a lot of them. Our current sheriff, I remember him as a young deputy too. But so we, we, we had to get, get it put together. We put a, put a small little group of people together uh, with her and her help and, and some other people from probation. Uh, I knew somebody who worked at the hospital uh, so we could get the hospital district involved as well. Uh, and, then, and then law enforcement. Now we put together a small team and then we had to go try to sell it at a high school. The premise of the high school of the program was to go to a high school, uh, and every 15 minutes, uh, a, we'd have some kind of sound. You, we were using a heartbeat and a flat line in the school. Uh, someone would knock on a classroom door. We would pull a student out. No, and we'll go back to how the that gets started. But you know, and someone would die, and we we did that all day long in the school. Pull them out. Eventually, we would take them all together and. And uh, mid morning, have a have a simulated wreck in the parking lot, and and kind of fun games for the kids and and the parents as well. If I if I go back and say, before all that, the setup of all that was to have the parents involved as well, 
And even before that, as I said, we went around trying to find a school that would say yes. I talked to school boards, talked to principals, talked to many a many an adult. Uh, we met with we met with with you know with the school officials. We met with the student councils, and every time we walked out of there, most of the parent, most of the adults, and some parents would look at us and go, "We can't do this," because the scenes in the video were of horrendous uh, crash, wreck, mayhem, whatever you want to call it, blood and guts type of thing. And most of the adults were like, no, we can't do this. The kids can't handle that. And yet, on the other side of the hallway was, was, was the student council people or whatever organization was there, and they'd be like, we need this. We need to make this happen. We, you know, they know, you know, we know all the people that, that really could use this program. And as far as the blood and gore goes, well, you know, unlike, well, almost like today, parents don't understand or don't know what their kids are actually watching and seeing and, and, and are uh confronted with on a daily basis so the adults had a had a different and maybe they just they want to admit there was a problem and there, there was that too but we finally had a school willis high school was the first one that that said come come try this at, at our school and we did uh it, it required a lot of setup as far as uh meetings with the school board with the schools with the parents with the kids you know prior to a program and get aligning all our resources together too. I just mentioned a few of them, and that there, there's more more to come. Uh, we would so Willis let us let us in. We we produced this program uh, at that point. Uh, I know I didn't, and this was in 1999 was our very first program. Unfortunately, we didn't have Gary at the time. I didn't know Gary at the time, so we I had someone else doing our our, our production work. Uh, but it it was a as I've always said, it's about a 30-hour program for us. We would put it on, go through the night, take the kids on a retreat uh, where they would listen to speakers and or watch videos or whatever else we had in store for them, and then bring them back the next day and have an assembly. This was all off that video that we had seen, how it was done, and and the feedback on that video from those parents and kids was was awesome. Uh, you know, this needs to be done everywhere. Everybody needs to see this. And so we wanted to try to recreate that as best we could. We did that. We did the scene, the crash scene. Most of the makeup or moulage, as we called it, was done by a lot of volunteers we had. A lot of people worked for uh, were EMTs, and, and even, even the 20 years that we did this, most of our moulage came from people who worked in the, in the industry of uh, first responders because, again, they could recreate a very, very lifelike injury. Uh, one of our guys would come to come to the program that morning uh, with a bag of bones, uh, cow bones or something, so he could use to put those on someone's arm as, the, as if it was sticking out or, or whatever, legs and all kinds of other mayhem. But they're good at what they do. I'm, I, if you watch any of our videos, I think it's, a, it's a, as good as any Hollywood production on many of them. Uh, but we, we did that, and we did it over and over again. Uh, first year was one school, second year was another, was Conroe High School, and then after that we went to two schools and then three schools a year uh, every spring. The outcome of the program for us was, was trying to educate uh, teenagers about the dangers of drinking and driving. And we started with drinking because that's what was the, that in the day was what the problems were. 
uh, as a prosecutor before even the program, I remember being there and having parents come to me and say, oh, you know, Johnny's a really good kid. He didn't really mean to do whatever, whatever it was that he did, whether he was just drinking and or uh, injuring somebody. And, and I'd look at them and I'd say, I'm sure he is because he didn't mean to do this. No one ever gets in their car and says, I'm going to go out there and, and kill somebody or run down someone's fence or whatever. But it happens. It's a bad choice. Someone makes a bad decision, just like just like you did. <laughs> uh, and 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 they did. And and, so, and the consequences are a whole lot more severe. Even in the nineties, uh, it had gotten to a point where uh, DWI was being enforced a whole lot more than it is than it was way back when. Even when I was growing up, uh, I'm not going to tell about what I did. Just so you know, uh, but. Those are the, those are the things that, that we tried to outline. One of the part of the program was was everybody said it was for the kids. I I got to the realization that it was actually almost for the parents as well. But the parents would have to do certain things, and, and the cat's out of the bag now. So I'm, it's not a, it's not a secret. It was way in the beginning that those prior meetings with the parents was one of them was to prepare them and, and also have them do an obituary for their child. And many of you are probably listening, going, "What?" I can't do that. Well, you, you would have to if you, if you and your child were going to be in this program. It was a it was a very eye opening experience for many many a person, for many a uh, participant. You know, the kids were in a different room, you know, learning about what, what was going to happen on the retreat or whatever. But and maybe being in the wreck, but they all wanted to be in the wreck. They wanted to be a casualty, um, or go to jail, or ride in the ambulance, or ride in the helicopter. Because those are all the kind of things that happen in the program. But the parents in the onset. We're like, I don't want to do this, but they did. Most of, I think, of all the twenty some odd years we did this, I might have had four parents walk out the door say, "I'm not doing this. I'm going to go get my daughter or son or whatever, and we're not going to do this." And that's, you know, all I could do is shake my head, say, "Okay," because that's just part of it. Uh, and the effect of that was 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 twofold: make them think, and then make the, make their own kids think. Uh, those those obituaries would get read when kids would pull out of the class during the day. The kids would hear them for the first time. Again, when the program was new, that's really what happened. I think as you know, the years went by, some, everybody was kind of expecting it. But uh, that was a very, very true-to-life, try to get the feelings going. The kids would hear it. Uh, the rest of the class would hear it. And so it would have an effect. They would get posted in the in the common area of whatever school we were at. So throughout the day, the rest of the student population could go by and, and read what parents had written about their kids. And they would laugh and they would, you know, joke about it, and that's fine. Others would take it to heart because it was kind of a, a premonition of what could happen. Uh, we want, wanted people to, to look at it and say, this is what could happen. This is what how it would affect their life. And I say that knowing that some of the students that actually went with us on that retreat that, that night would tell us that they, you know, during, during the day we kind of segregated them from the rest of the school, but, but we let them see their obituary that was read for them. They might have heard it in the classroom, but they're, now they get to go see it. And, and some of those kids would tell us, I never knew that mom and dad or mom or whoever was listening to me. Because parents would, would write their heart out. They would say, uh, you know, again, I, I just use whatever name, John, you know, had great plans in, for his future and you know, he was going to go to college and he was going to do X, Y, and Z. You know, he really wanted to go to A&M or whatever school. Uh, I remember one, one young lady, uh, young student came to us and said, I never knew 
I never knew they listened. And that was quite moving for us to know that it affected her that way, that all the time the teenagers think, you know, mom and dad are just dumb or stupid or whatever they want to call them. Uh, but they were there for her, and she knew she realized it at that moment. And so the next day, obviously, she had to go back, and, or she would go back and, and visit with her folks again later. We also had the kid, also had parents. Another one exercise that we did with parents was the night that we were gone is is to do an, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not an obituary, but a eulogy. I'm getting old too. So a eulogy, and so we'd have we'd have four, maybe five red during the assembly the next day when we brought them back to school, uh, and so you know, and the eulogy is a little bit different than a, than the obituary. And again, those were t- eye-opening experiences for the whole student body, uh, where it was read in front of. Uh, and then, and then the the reunion of the kids for us was the greatest moment. Uh, we, us as the as the Shadow Lives team uh, would sit back, and, and at some point we were done with the assembly, and we'd just say, you know, come get your kids, or kids go down there and say hello to your parents. And that was it was a great reunion. It was almost as good as watching some of these these uh, military reunions that we see because. It was as emotional as it can be. It was only 30 hours, but the parents were so happy to see their children, and their children were just as happy to see them too. And you know, knowing that, you know, a couple of days before they were probably arguing about something because, as teenagers do, they will. Uh, but those were the emotional moments uh, for us afterwards to hear kids talk about uh, their experiences later. As we, being that we did it in the spring, there was always prom coming. Uh, all that graduation, uh, and we would get letters back and or emails talking about what they did and didn't do. Uh, many of them were as simple as, "Well, we didn't go to we didn't go down to Galveston. You know, the after prom, we we went home, stayed at somebody's house, and then we went to Galveston the next morning. So it wasn't in, at night. It wasn't when they were all drinking. Some of them uh, actually became designated drivers in their own right uh, to whatever they did. Uh, one of the one of the th- speeches I gave to parents was that. Uh, I never told people we were not going to try to teach abstinence because they're underage, and drinking age is 21. But the truth is, because I was a child once, as we all were, if you can drink at 14, you're going to because it's available to you. You're going to do it. Uh, some of these parents don't want to accept that, but it's true because I've, I've had many a strong talk about, well, why don't you teach abstinence? Because we don't. That's not what this is about. The reality is they're going to drink. They're going to get exposed to it, and they're going to drink. And so that's what we were trying to say. If you're going to do this stupid stuff, we'll call it that, then understand that there are consequences for you. And, and those consequences can be as severe as going to jail, uh, going to prison, uh, killing someone, taking someone's life. Because ours was on the extreme side. The program actually shows that someone actually took someone's life or several people's lives uh, and the effect that has on people. It's not just about a person or two. Um, I've always called it a community program because it would not have happened without the resources of the entire community at our at our uh, at our hands. You know, as simple as a hospital, the Mon- the hospital district, uh, DPS, sheriff, constable, the helicopter service, uh, the funeral homes, the, the record services. I thank every one of those. Uh, uh, individuals and, and organizations for coming coming to our aid because we could not do this without them. This was never my program, as some people called us. And no, it's not. I talk about it now because I love talking about this program. But I could not have 
it could never have taken place without all the resources coming together of, of a community to put it on. Um, I'll even go as far as say somebody asked me, people would say, what was that cost? Well, a true cost, I could probably just guess because I don't know what it costs to have three ambulances at our disposal for, for a morning and or the helicopter, which pretty much is $5,000 to fly. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, four or five emergency rooms at, the, at whichever hospital we were at for, for about an hour and a half or so, plus uh, maybe a doctor who would actually participate too. The ER doctor wandered wander through and help us with the, with, the, with the program. So all those are costs that I'd never had to bear, Fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 perhaps for, for one of these programs. You know, we had to house the kids at a, at a hotel one night. That was about it. But, you know, maybe it, we might need a th- couple thousand for our program. Of course, the video costs money, too. Uh, Gary has always been a, a generous person with his talents, time and talents on this program. So, you know, we would try to raise some money, and we, and we got it done. We got it done for 20 years, 22 years, I guess, before COVID shut us down. But it's so much different than it was when we grew up, grew up just like we were talking about, you know, Cops would take you home if you were intoxicated. You know, they might call your parents, you know, on the worst side. Uh, nowadays, if, you, if you're stopped, you're going to go to jail. You're going to get a DWI, and it's going to stay in your record. DWIs never go away. They will always be on your record so that they, if you do it again in a few years, it's the second one, and that's a, the punishment just goes up from there. You know, your third one is a felony, uh, and then fourth, fifth, and sixth, you're going to go to prison. So... That's just the way that works nowadays. Again, I prosecuted until 2009, uh, and then I became a defense attorney. I'd been out since 2009 practicing law, defending people, uh, which isn't really that hard to do uh, because, again, I'm just making sure that their rights are protected. And I have had the unfortunate circumstance to represent people involved in, in drinking and, and driving type incidents. Uh, so uh, I understand both sides. I've seen it from both sides. Before I uh, turn this over to Gary Parker, do you have a, a good guess or an actual how many of these you did through all the years? How many programs? Yeah. Well, you figure we did we did one, two, and then we started doing two a year, and then we started doing four a year. Uh, and probably by, by probably by about two thousand and three or four, we were doing we were doing uh, four programs. A semester, and we had twelve high schools at one time in Montgomery County, and then it kept on growing. So, but because we had four, we were doing two schools every year, or we would go to each senior class um, every two years. So we could do that, uh, but we had we had four, and we maybe we had sixty to eighty kids per program. People would tell me, "Well, that's only you know eighty kids or three hundred kids a year," but I've always said those those 300 kids have 10 friends, at least, who have seen this program, who have seen, can acknowledge what their friends have done and seen, who have been involved with. Uh, so exponentially, it would grow. It would grow enough that I know that I would get calls from, from aunts and uncles who saw the video online you know, after we did a school because somebody was calling them and telling them to watch it. And I'd be, be asked to do it in other, other communities as well. But because we focused on Montgomery County, we did it in Montgomery County only, and again, I knew the I knew the players that needed to come play with us, and then they did uh, voluntarily. I mean, we're getting calls to come back, and we're getting calls by law enforcement saying, "Hey, you're going to do this again this year? You're coming to our community," and so that's how popular it became. 
Obviously, you came in maybe not right at the beginning, but fairly early in the process. To kind of talk a little bit about uh, how you got involved, the uh, unique challenge you have to go do all that and edit it and get it done so quickly. And then you can just tell us about your... Uh, great passion for this project and what you've decided to do with the uh, uh, the upcoming Shattered Lives television series? Well, Mike Valdez changed my life some 20 plus years ago. Um, he, we met through a mutual friend who was with the hospital district at the time and, and he said, we do this program, I want you to video it in the the caveat is we have to show it the next morning at, at the school. And being a lot younger then, staying up all night editing did not sound like something that was as, as scary as it sounds like right now. But uh, from the very first program, I realized how important it was. I realized how many lives it would touch. I realized it was so in your face that most of the students would get it. You know, some of them laugh, but that was a defense mechanism a lot of the time because, you know, you see your friends, your classmates, even people you don't know, but they're your age groups in a mangled up cars, and they're all bloody and got bones sticking out and all this, and then you hear sirens, and then by the time the sirens, you can hear them, they're right on top of you. You've got law enforcement, you got EMS, you got the police, you got everybody ascending on the scene as if it was real. And they're working on these people and trying to revive them and save their lives, like, right in front of your face. And so I realized from the very beginning the secret to the videos we created was to create emotion. Uh, zero in on the people who were f obviously affected by this. And hopefully through that and, and being there and watching the video the next day and watching the video again, share it with their friends, they would go, you know, this is awful. I don't want this to ever happen. Once we got to, to the YouTube days and we were doing videos and they'd go up on YouTube, we were having all these questions and people go, is this real? Did this just happen? Oh, my gosh, what happened? You know, there's like they're worried that six kids just died in true. an accident in front of the high school. Very I true. mean, it was that realistic People stop on the side of the road when we were at Magnolia that time. They, they stopped, thought something had happened in their parking lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so for me, from the very beginning, it was, it was the most important program, the most important video work I ever did. Um, I grew in, I, I immediately was in love with the project. I was immediately in love with what Mike and his people did. And I thought, you know, I thought, okay, if our efforts – save one life this is well worth all the efforts and there was a lot of people that put a lot of time and and, and effort into this and so i was just the guy to capture i fortunately was the guy that in the end when it was all done i had a video to show everybody what happened 
you know, because all the people working the scene and stuff, they're so busy in the moment, you know, they didn't see what their buddies or their cohorts or the other fire department was doing. So it was, it was kind of a, a, a moment in time was created with these videos. And so um, we, we enjoyed these. I actually got hired by surrounding county school districts to do theirs. You know, the word had spread and they go, well, we want to do this and, and uh, we want you to come video ours and so forth. And so there, were, there was a couple years between Tom Ball and Cold Spring and Tarkington and Cypress Creek and, and all these different school districts where I, I, one year I did eight of these. And that's all done within, yeah, it's all done with a couple of months in the spring. And so by the end of it, I was pretty rattled, but it was, it was something I was proud of. I always tried to make sure every video was different. Every video had a different little story to it that was unique to that school. Um, we always use music, different music in every video, except for um, a young lady wrote a song for Tomball. Uh, called Shattered Lies, and so they used that for a number of years. So when it all came crashing down like the rest of our lives uh, with COVID, and they could no longer get into the hospitals, no longer get in the schools and everything else, I started thinking about, you know, I, I hate to see this program die. It's been so good. It's been so important to me. I think it's been so important to my children, you know, um, None of my kids was ever in it. Cheyenne was playing soccer that year and won in it. And Lakota uh, ran the other way. He's playing football. He goes, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> I was fortunate that I didn't do that. But they lived with that. And it, it was an example for them to not make a decision. Not that they won't. Not that I won't. But at least it was there. It was a painted picture of um, and it, now at this point, I, I meet people sometimes who have ch grown children now who are in teenagers who were in our program way back then. And yeah, I was in that video. And I go, well, we, I made that video. So I, I hated to see it end. I did not want to see it to end. And so um, Bruce May, my buddy, script writing buddy, you know, goes, uh, uh, well, you need to make a movie, you know. You haven't made one in years. You've worked on 20 of them, but you've never done one yourself. You know, you want to direct one. Everybody does. And um, he says, I wrote you a script years ago. Why don't we do that? When I go, no, the one we need to do is Shattered Lives. We need to take the concept that Mike st and, and all those folks started, and we need to make a fictional story of that where a young man makes a bad decision, kills his friends, and what's the consequences of that, you know? And I wanted to be real, I wanted to go to prison, I wanted to see what happened to the families who were left behind, you know? What, what was it like for them, you know? How do you, how do you make it through that? How do you grieve yourself back to any sense of normality after your child's been killed? And so um, I told Bruce, get to writing. And so he wrote, wrote us an 80-minute feature film, which was good. But it didn't have enough backstory. It didn't have enough development of the characters, I felt like. It was basically centered around this horrific crash, which is great. But the advantage I want to do now that we never could do because of the time limits, you know, in the high schools, we had basically 24 hours to tell the story. And I think they did a phenomenal job. But I wanted to see what it was really like on a community, you know, a community our size that that we all know each other. We all go to the same churches. We all shop at the same stores. And, mm -hmm. and for something this to happen would have, you know, a horrific uh, uh, change of life for people. 
So I said, yeah, go back and write me a 10-part series. And Bruce about walked out and said, you know, never want to talk to you again. But he did. He wrote a, a really excellent script, a 10-part series. And uh, you get to meet the kids and the families. You know what they're about and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And then, you know, like, like I had a friend who had always taught me into trouble, as I call it. Um, I'd say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to work. And he goes, no, come on. We'll, we won't get caught. And so James in the, in the story has a friend who says, you know, your dad's going out of town this weekend. Let's have a party. And James goes, no, I, he asked me not to do that. I don't want to do that. His friend basically starts inviting people to his house for the party. And so they end up having a party. And him and, him and his friend, they run out of alcohol. So they, they say, oh, we, I'll go get something. And he goes, I'll go get something. And so they basically challenge each other who can get to the, you know, the liquor store first. And they meet in an intersection where James T-bones his car with his best friends and other friends in it. And so he kills all these kids and and faces that consequence and, and eventually goes to prison for it. Um, it's an uplifting story. It doesn't sound like it when I describe it like that. But it is, it is a story of uh, forgiveness, a story of redemption. Um, we're all going to face things in our lives that are difficult, challenges. It may be with medical problems. It may be with children problems. It may be with somebody we know is on drugs or alcohol. We're all going to face these challenges. And this movie or this TV series represents how we, how we face those and how to face it right and how in the end to basically survive this type of situation and, and be okay as a society because – we all go through this. It affects all of us. And um, I just, I thank Mike. Like I say, he changed my life that day. Uh, he gave me something that I feel like is the most important project I've ever been involved in and I've ever done. It's, it's the proudest work I have. And so um, the series, and I've got Mike as a co-producer on that, Keep It Real. But the series is uh, is kind of my swan song. You know, my last thing I want to do before I, you know, retire or whatever, uh, because I think it's that important. Tell us, uh, don't tell us, tell the listeners, the droves and millions that are out there, If they're interested in more about Shattered Lives and especially your upcoming TV series, where they can go to get more information. Okay, you can go to ShatteredLiesTVMiniseries.com and all the information's on there. We ask, we're asking people, we had a fundraiser uh, a week or two weeks ago where we were asking people to make donations to us. Um, we need to raise money to produce the pilot, you know, the episode one. And so we've been asking people to donate to us to uh, to get that episode one done because we've got some people like Angel Studios that said yeah if you got a pilot show it to us we may help you with you know the rest of the production of the other nine so we're doing that the the website's a great place to start um, you can call me if you want seven one three eight two eight six four one six uh, I can hook you up with Mike Valdez or hook you up with Bruce May who's the scriptwriter and uh, if you want to be a sponsor like Lori Parker, um, we can tell you how I can do that, be a segment sponsor or a show sponsor. Other ways you can help us make this 
And, uh, you know, if you just have a story about someone you lost, you know, we would love to hear that too. We, we, we need the encouragement. We need the money. We need to make this happen, I think. Um, I think it's something we want to leave, leave as our legacy to, um, to always. I, I don't want to ever see a young person hurt, you know, and I know it's going to happen. But if we can do anything to help that not to happen, then let's do it. Fair enough. Mike, do you have any thoughts to kind of wrap things up with? Well, just, just I was thinking, Gary was talking, is that you know, as much time and effort as we put into Shattered Lives in Montgomery County for the for the high schools and to present these programs and, and um, have all the participation, this miniseries is a pretty good segue into what happens next because we would stop with the wreck and, and, and the death and the mayhem. Uh, the miniseries takes it a little further. And, and more more real life because there are consequences whether they go to prison and then there's redemption which is something we never really covered but it's true having been in the practice of law for, for the last 33 years I, I see that that that's just something healing is, is, is an important part of, of, of being human uh, to be able to come come to terms and grips with what's happened in the past and then move forward mm-hmm. and be able to accept and move forward with things but that's what the miniseries does it goes a little further and does that touches people's lives in a different way, and, and again, I think that's a, the logical progression of what, what I did 24 years ago uh, to what we're doing now. I've got a uh, closing thought that I told Gary about it, his fundraiser, that, uh, and then I'll let Gary, like he always does, kind of wrap up uh, this episode for us, but. I think with Shattered Lives, and I've known Gary a long time, and I live in the community where they're done. I did them at the high school multiple times that my two daughters went to. But I I was thinking of this, is that Shattered Lives affect a lot of people. Obviously, the person that shatters the lives, but all the relatives, all the different people involved, the community itself. But then something, and I might struggle a little bit to get through this, but something dawned on me. Uh, both my daughters are grown and married, and uh, uh, but both of them have gotten married in the last five years. And where we sit at our dining table, uh, we would sit on one side and the girls on the other side, but now that they're gone, my wife Pixie has started working puzzles, and that takes up about half of the uh, table. And so I got moved down to the corner where I looked down on the wedding pictures of my two daughters. And I thought this I said, you know, all the immediate heartache and all the people it affects are here and saddened by all of it. But a couple of the stories that I told today, if I would have been unlucky and ended my life, then those two girls would not be here today. True. So your consequences go beyond the immediate. You literally change the history of your family, your life, Who's going to, you know, my wife, I'm sure would have met somebody else. 
and they would have had kids, but they wouldn't have been my two kids. And I thought and thought about that, and then I told Gary about it, but I think that's probably the biggest shattered life of all, is when you steal uh, opportunities for people to, to live on this earth, and you take something from your family. So, yeah, I did some crazy things when I was a kid, but I was really lucky every single time, but I might not have been, and uh, I would have, uh, uh, in many ways, even if I would have lived, uh, probably I would have had a different path in my life. So I think that's something to think about as well. Yep. Uh, Michael, you have any closing thoughts? No, again, I would I would uh, encourage everybody to, to go, go go to Shadow Lives, uh, the TV miniseries.com, and uh, check it out. Go check it out. Support us any way you can. We'd appreciate it. So um, I'm going to wrap us up, Craig. Um, this is really important. You know, a lot of the stuff we do here at Not Fade Away is kind of fun and uh, not so serious. We have a lot of fun here. But today it was, it was a little more serious because we want you to be in this world as long as you can and have that fun. So this is just our thought about, you know, watch out. Don't drink and drive. Don't text and drive. Watch out for other drivers. Just be safe out there. Uh, so just a little housework. Um, Craig and I have decided that uh, we're going to revamp our approach a little bit to our project. Thank you for all of you that have been faithful listeners. And we've got a lot, which has been great. And we've had them from all over the world, which is pretty funny. Um, but we're going to treat these episodes as archives, like uh, like you'd have in a library, as opposed to seasonal release. So basically, we're going to you need to check, you know, pretty regular. We're going to be adding episodes, kind of as, as as things come up like this one did today. So just pick an episode and watch it. Um, please take this one, share it with your friends, like you do all the others. But uh, we won't always be this serious, but this is one that's close to all of our hearts, and we, uh, we appreciate you listening. And remember, our memories will not fade away, and thank you for joining us on Not Fade Away Archives. We'll see you next time. The gravity, yeah, yeah. It knocks me down on my-